Hello everybody and welcome to the IMD podcast series. Uh, I am Arturo Briz, I'm a professor of finance at IMD and I'm very happy here to join my colleagues Mark and Howard who are going to discuss with me uh, all that is related to the coronavirus crisis in China. Mark, how are you? Uh, thank you, Arturo. Very happy to be here. Uh, my name is Mark Reif. I'm a professor of innovation and strategy at IMD Business School. And I'm Howard. I'm a professor of management and innovation at IMD as well. So technically speaking, what we are going through is a market crash. You know, yesterday, Chinese market dropped by almost 8%. Uh, this is the largest drop in Chinese markets since August 2015. We were supposed to have another crash. And we are witnessing a very negative outlook in financial markets, which certainly reflects something that is going on fundamentally in, uh, in the world economy. So I would like to know from you, uh, what is, in your opinion, the short-term and long-term implications of this crisis, particularly in China? I think this really put on a lot of stress in the Chinese system. I mean, for the last year or so, China has been embroiled in the trade war against the US and have already created a lot of constraint already. And then with the latest um, outbreak, it really stopped um, people from traveling. International companies are shuttling down store. Airlines are stopped bringing passengers in either way. And it's just causing a lot of disruption, particularly in this very important period of uh, Chinese New Year as well. So it, to me, it really comes in a very bad timing and caught a Chinese government off guard. Um, that probably is one of the reasons why the market loses confidence so much over the sudden. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're very right, Howard. I think that this, this crisis came uh, at, a, at, a, at a very bad moment. Of course, crises always come at bad moments, but I think there is already a lot of stress in the Chinese system. Uh, the accelerating growth of the economy in general, the mm -hmm. trade war, etc. Um, however, if you ask me to assess what is going to be the short-term and the long-term effect of this, uh, this crisis, uh, and, and hopefully it's going to be resolved very soon, is on the short term, obviously, we're going to see uh, challenges, especially for smaller businesses in China, mm -hmm. especially for businesses in the service sector, and this is going to be a, a, a big challenge. So uh, we expect that a lot of small, small, medium-sized enterprises are going to face uh, severe challenges or have to, to, to mm -hmm. stop. Um, however, on the longer run, um, I'm slightly more optimistic. I think that uh, the, the system, as, as China has built, economic system, has built in some anti-fragility, uh, meaning there is a bit of robustness in the system that, on the long run, I don't think this is going to uh, fundamentally change the prospects of the Chinese economic growth. Um, having said that, uh, in the end, it's all uh, the word that Howard mentioned is, uh, is confidence. And I think for the foreseeable months, if not longer, the confidence uh, of uh, the consumers, of investors, is probably going to be not great. And the voices inside China uh, that are critical uh, to what is the approach, the, the, the adjustment of the economy, the response, are going probably to grow bigger rather than smaller. For a non-expert in China like myself, um, could you see this crisis as profoundly affecting anything that has to do with global tra uh, trade? Because obviously China is the major trade partner with the, right. with the European Union, but also with the US, with Brazil, for example. But it's interesting what you say. So 
Absent that, do you think that this is going to have a big effect also domestically? Mm. That is, besides the internal panic, what mm. could be the, the effect within China? Mm. Uh, not, not necessarily referring to what is going to happen respect to Chinese imports or exports. Mm. I think one of the highlights right now we are seeing the Chinese government is trying to inject liquidity into the public market to really crop, prop up the economy. Mm -hmm. And right now is really at the phase where the economic growth is the lowest rate mm -hmm. over the last three decades. And what we are seeing is, as Mark described, is the struggling of small medium-sized company. For the longest time, I think a lot of Chinese company almost having this assumption that growth is automatic. We are on a great trajectory. As long as we are fearless in expanding our product offering, embracing AI, you know, continue to prowl back to manufacturing prowess and capacity, the world is literally the oyster, the sky's the limit. I think this episode really bring in some reality check that, you know, as our supply chain is actually very fragile. And the moment there are episodes disrupting the global supply chain, mm. never mind about trade tariffs, everything can come to a halt. So I think for the first time, a lot of companies would realize whether it's building up redundancy or contingency plan, these are much more of a sophisticated management system. That would be probably a good effect that Chinese company begins to think in a more systemic way of isolating risk, country risk, uh, beyond just technologies and market. Just, just to add on that, I think that we've always admired Chinese companies for their agility, flexibility, responsiveness to new opportunities and um, being able to adjust. And I think this types of agility is probably going to help some of the companies and, and entrepreneurs in China today. So. Um, it's not that they're not used to dealing with uncertainty. Uh, however, agility has one very big prerequisite, and that is there must be enough buffer in the organization in terms of cash flow, people, uh, leads for new business. There must be enough buffer to allow that and to, to, to prosper still. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're now at, at a phase where we will see that some companies were, that are very agile and quick to respond and know how to deal with, with crises, um, whether or not their buffers uh, are, are big enough to deal with that. So, so this is, um, for, for me, uh, as, as Howard indicated, this, it is a bit of a test, uh, but I'm afraid that uh, a, a large number, uh, so literally thousands or hundreds of thousands of companies, are, are not, going to make, uh, not going to make the mark, um, in particular in the service industry. So uh, think about most of the economic growth in China has been driven by medium and small-sized entrepreneurs. So they face the biggest challenge today uh, and in the next month. So I think that's going to be one of the, uh, one of the biggest, biggest challenges. Mm. Um, what really surprises me in this episode mm. is also highlighting this interdependency, right? Yes. right. Around mm. the world, it's not just China is facing this challenge. I discovered that even automaker in India find themselves getting into a situation the auto parts are in scarcity because of the current episode, the outbreak at the same time, which obviously impact on the stock market as well. Mm. Arturo, you mm -hmm. wrote a piece just mm -hmm. yesterday looking at the stock market. Obviously, 
you know, one could think about the stock market is irrational, or the market is actually quite rational, pricing in information we may not know. Walk us a little bit about the logic, and is the market doing well? What's going on there? It's interesting because this kind of a example of a butterfly effect, what you said earlier, is that I think for the last 10 years we have been wondering what the root of the next crisis is going to be. And for some, no, China was in the picture, but no, I don't think anybody thought that it would be an event like this one that has killed us as of today 400 people. We're talking about private debt in China, we're talking about a big blow up of a big bank or something like that. Uh, this I, I think shows exactly what you say. One possibility is that we are responding to a small scale event in a multiplicative way because of the impact of that on on uh, people's sentiment or investor sentiment on trade, uh, uh, on the geopolitical imbalances is big at the end of the day, or it could just be pure market irrationality. Mm -hmm. That is, there has been an overreaction, kind of an irrational bubble in markets last year, and then suddenly we see that the small blip in the system, boom, causes a, a, a big panic. I think, unfortunately, the, the problem that the damage has been done, especially in markets. So what happens now, when you see market drops of 10% or more, mm. is that there are, there are some people that benefit at the expense of others. Mm. You know, sophisticated investors at the expense of less informed, prone to panic, prone to panic investors. Right. And it's still not clear what it's going to be. Mm. That is, it, is it a real threat? And then we're going to see big economic impact, or is just overreaction of markets? Uh, it, it, is, it is certainly difficult to know, but both, I think both uh, hypotheses are perfectly solid, given the fact that we have. And do you think the uh, impact on individual stock, would that be sector specific? Would that affect certain type of companies in the US or Europe disproportionately bigger mm. than other companies? Yes, the, the problem is that in the last years, we have had a, a process of deglobalization. Meaning that less and less the global factors matter as they used to matter 10 years ago. And today, uh, country factors are more important than the global factor. What this means is that, from my perspective, the countries that are mostly exposed to the coronavirus crisis, starting with China, mm. but followed by the European Union, which is by and large the biggest trading partner of China, the United States, commodity exporting countries and oil exporting countries are going to suffer the most. Oh, yeah. So oh. there's going to be a differential effect. And I would say that this is going to be much more important than industry mm. uh, uh, factors. Because as you said earlier, you know, services are going to be massively impacted, but also commodity-based industries are going to be impacted. Because at the end of the day, when Russia shuts down its borders to China, mm. you know, it doesn't matter which sector we're going to talk about. Yeah. So I think there are going to be winners and losers at the country level. Mm -hmm. And of course, companies that operate in those contexts are going to suffer more. Yeah, which kind of brings in an interesting question, and I never thought it through. Is it better or not? Because there is one rhetoric right now is the world is too integrated. We should decouple. So that's the US administration, whether it's economy or technologies, we want to separate. And what we are seeing in this outbreak is the world is way more connected than we thought. Even if we stop capital from going around, 
even if we stop traffic and transportation going around, the virus going around anyways, mm -hmm. yes. and required a sort of global coordination that, quite frankly, I find it disturbingly little at this moment. It's really country by country doing their own thing rather than let's do it together led by some kind of World Health Organization. Um, right now, still being talked whether the scientists are allowed mm -hmm. to travel to China. I think there is this public sentiment that people are closing up at a time that we need, in fact, even more global scale type of coordination. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you think about mm -hmm. this um, trend. I, I think that you know, this shows what the world that we live in today uh, unfortunately, that we have, um, you know, we have decoupled systems in our minds, but the reality is that we are more dependent on each other than ever before. So many companies, so many knowledge, not talking about even about capital flows, is integrated and interdependent, and there is actually, there's not really a choice. We are very much integrated, and it's whether or not we choose to collaborate also at the political level to, you know, to, to solve such crisis um, is, is up to the political leaders, obviously. But I think economically speaking, there is not even a choice. I think we are already in a state of, of a world economy where there's no way to talk about the Chinese economy versus the European economy or at any, mm. any other part of the world. So, so and I think that, um, you know, the initial signals that, that we've seen in the, uh, in the response to this crisis uh, from the Chinese side, but also from other sides, are, are, are sometimes worrying. I, I, I think that is, uh, um, unfortunately, not, uh, not much very good news, uh, I think, today. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you, how you see this, Arturo. Yes. No, no, I think that the, if you look at the last two historical episodes of deglobalization, mm. uh, that have been happening because of wars. So the First World War and the Second World War and the Cold War. Mm. I don't think this is going to be the case anymore. Uh, and I think to me, um, and Howard pointed that out, I think this crisis shows our fragility mm -hmm. and then the fact that this can be it. That is, we may be talking about episodes like that mm. today or in the future that are going to trigger this backslash into our mm. globalization efforts right. uh, because of interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. okay? yeah. As Marx says, you know, we're so connected that again, it's more, it doesn't need to be a second world war. Okay. Know, so we shut down our borders. I mean, this very small effect, right. you know, that, right. that now, in order to protect, then we're going to build these walls right. to, to, to protect our health or to protect our, you know, political independence or whatever it's going to be. And I think that's, a, that's quite interesting mm -hmm. because uh, we need to also, I, I think from our perspective as a business school, we need mm -hmm. to also help companies cope with that. That is, right. I don't know what you think about that, but if, if, if I go in front of my participants now in a program and have mm. to tell them, how do you need to prepare yourself mm. for this type of events in the future, mm. we, should, we should have something to say. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Particularly from a crisis management perspective, whether it's communication or protocol, because there is no protocol. A lot of the mm -hmm. time, this is the first time exactly. it happens. So how do we communicate right. to our stakeholders, to our customer? to a constituency, I see a lot of company kind of stumble along uh, simply because we don't have a ability to grow our leaders so that they can think independently 
having the right decision power to make the right decision, whether it's in the weekend, no matter which part of the world. And that idea that I'm gonna draft something and wait for corporate approval, and then the corporate would come back to you in a few days or a week, um, this episode really flash out all these uh, fragile points that things doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. I mean, fundamentally, this tells us that we need to help our participants to get comfortable with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. How to make decisions when we just don't have enough information. And we're facing this situation mm -hmm. today. And, and I think that's something that we are traditionally not comfortable with. Uh, and neither are the way our organizations are structured. Our organizations are structured according to rules and processes that need a certain set of stability in the terms of conditions of the environment. So more fundamentally, I think this is challenging also our assumptions, how we as leaders, how we as organizations organize ourselves to be more, mm -hmm. I would say comfortable, comfortable is a bad word probably, but be comfortable with uncertainty uh, and, and that we, we learn how to make decisions probably mm -hmm. quicker uh, with less information. And this is, I think, um, you know, what I referred to earlier, I think that Chinese companies and Chinese leaders have in fact more experience with that mm. considering the last let's say 60 70 years of turmoil that china has been through so you know being in an environment of uncertainty for a lot of chinese leaders and, uh, and entrepreneurs and managers is less strange than let's say for the typical dutch uh mm. manager or, or ceo so so, so, how, so how would you say that the chinese company would respond differently from a Dutch company, that's interesting yeah, so, in a crisis so like this. This is, this is actually fascinating. So what, what we see is that this, the decision-making processes, on, on the one hand, are more centralized. So we see sort of a strong leader that is daring to make a big decision where not necessarily everybody in the organization is willing or needs to provide consensus, which we typically would do in, in more Dutch organizations. At the same time, we see this strong leader with a lot of autonomy in the execution of the decisions, which means that for companies to implement that vision, this strong, powerful uh, decision by the leader is actually highly decentralized. And, and I think that is an, an interesting approach that we see with, uh, we see that also with some Dutch companies. Huh? So I'm not, we, we cannot generalize uh, the Dutch organization, but in Chinese companies, I think by necessity, this has been uh, uh, more prevalent. Those who survive, right? Because exactly. in yeah. China, this is such a Darwinian selection yes. in terms of corporate performance. So those who grew big and survive and have staying power by definition, right. they're much more adaptable, right. pretty much modularized, mm -hmm. and have ability to set up sandboxes, if you will, exactly. Exactly. for individual manager to pursue right. the strategic goal. But mm -hmm. I also thought, you know, I would make a hypothesis that company who can ride up from this storm are also ones that are more advanced in their digital journey. Because the fact that in order to respond quick and respond with the right answer and the right choice, you need information to make big bet. And digitization, oftentimes people think, oh, I'm launching an app, I'm doing some social media marketing, but it's not. It's about getting the organization to have as much information as possible at your fingertips to automate as much as possible all the mundane so that manager can spend time looking at the outlier episode like this. And so at the snap of the finger, you know what product gets stuck at where, 
which part of the supply chain is at risk, and you can respond to that. And I just fear a lot of large traditional company for all the legacy infrastructure they have, they don't even know what is at risk. Right. Mm. Yes, I agree. You know, in in my risk management classes, you know, before the mm. coronavirus crisis, I tend to emphasize the importance of information. And and exactly what you say. Now it becomes more important than ever, access to the right data, because everything that is happening is very obscure. Okay. I would add one thing as well, which is, is part of a risk management process, which is to have a model. Mm -hmm. And I think Exante to respond, in, in this particular crisis, companies should put people first, meaning customers and employees. I mean, we talk about customer centricity very often, <laughs> and I think it's only at this moment when customer centricity is put into action. And mm -hmm. for companies that are going through the crisis now, I think they should think first customers, then employees, and then everything else. Mm -hmm. no? Business continuity, profitability, share price, and so on. Uh, I think that's also the right way to respond. Because very often we forget that. We want to be customer-centric during the good times, mm -hmm. but not during the bad times. It, it's actually interesting you mentioned that. So I don't think there's, there's winners in this, in this type of crisis. But there are some companies that respond uh, better than other companies. And if we look at today, what is happening today in China and connecting to Howard, what you said about the digital maturity of some companies. So the companies that have this digital maturity, yeah, so some of the digital giants like this internet platforms or some of the transformed companies that, that are really have embraced this digital technology, they're today are massively going to the user, to the customer, to the employees to provide solutions to keep working under this condition of crisis. So, in fact, now, this week, it is, it is a work week in China, but people obviously will not go to the office. Mm. So what happens? All, most companies that understand that there's digital technologies out there to work over distance, for schools to use di distance learning platforms, we see this now massively being embraced. And that stems me slightly positive in this very uh, challenging uh, context that now we also can see some of the the power of digital technology for for good even during times of crisis it can actually help us to continue the work serve our customers help help educate our kids even under such adverse conditions yeah and my hope is you know out of this very very scary and sad episode it also comes to the public and policymakers understanding that a lot of the future crisis, whether it's climate change, unpredictable weather, disease, and all these does require global response. And the idea that just because the rise of China making the US administration feel very fearful, the rise of technological powerhouse we want to decouple, um, the idea there are so many big problems the planet is facing there's no winner and loser. If we don't cope and work across, uh, everyone is going to lose. Um, so, so maybe that would be some positive light coming mm -hmm. out from this scary episode. Yeah. Mm. That's a good point. That I think that we see now the importance of governments and politicians. And at the same time, we may see their inability to work together uh, at some point. So I think that I, I would like to see also corporate leaders uh, being being uh, pioneers in, in you know coming up with solutions and alternatives mm -hmm. 
because one of the dangers that you currently see is because of this deglobalization that we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. is that government is going to fly solo. Mm -hmm. And you have seen already what is happening between China and the US, that still of getting together and united, they are still, you know, making making complaints and reproaches to each other. And, and I think that's one of the problems that I see. So Arturo, one last prediction. With the current uh, outbreak uh, still looming uncertain, when would the stock market potentially be restored? Mm -hmm. I, I have been talking to, to market participants, so let me put the blame in them <laughs> rather than on my own, own prediction. But everybody agrees that I think we're going to see the peak of the crisis in the coming week. I think both in terms of stock market performance, but probably also in terms of you know, the, the, the virus itself. And then market will be either restored or, you know, keep on this negative momentum. But the, but we're, all this uncertainty is going to be unraveled in the coming week the when coming it comes week. to financial markets. Well, let's hope all these will, uh, will get passed soon. So thank you for your attention. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next uh, series of the IMD podcast. This is Arturo. This is Howard. This is Mark. <laughs>